time favorite hymns. Hey, happy Father's Day. A lot of fathers in here. I hope if you're being a father actively today, meaning you're raising your children, you're in that stage of life, I hope you're having a great time doing it. It, it is, to me, one of the most enjoyable things anyone can ever do. So uh, we give ourselves to that wholly. If you look back and you say, I didn't have a great father, or I didn't have a father, for some of us, didn't grow up with a father, uh, all fathers on earth ultimately derive their role Ephesians says, from God the Father in heaven. So if we didn't have a dad, didn't grow up under a dad, or had a dad that perhaps was not the best influence, we can still look to God the Father. His promises never end, and he is the one ultimately that we want to give our gaze, our eyes, our affections to. So great day to all you dads. Let me pray and we'll get into the message. Father, we submit ourselves before you with our wills, uh, Father, we want to unload sins, anxiety, anything this morning that we're bringing with us that would prevent us from simply meeting face-to-face with you and hearing your words to each of us. Help us to do that now. We ask by your Spirit, as we have your word and your promise, that you'd make real to us the things of Christ this morning in his name and for his honor and glory. Amen. One of my uh, favorite authors uh, is A.J. Conyers. He's, uh, he was a theology professor at Baylor uh, for many years, and some of his books are somewhat hard to get through. They're very thoughtful and demanding that way. But in his book, The Listening Heart, uh, he tells a humorous story. He repeats a humorous story that was originally told by Senator Sam Irvin. Irvin was a Democrat from North Carolina in the U.S. Senate from 54 to 74. He was known for his folksy, homesy kind of stories, and this is one of those. This is the story told. It seems there was a rural Baptist congregation near Murphy, North Carolina, and they decided to sell their historic church building. They found a buyer, and, and the hiccup came when the realtor realized that The church fathers, way back in the day when the church had been founded, they had deeded the property to the Lord God Almighty. So, yeah. So the attorney doesn't know what to do with this. Kent, they were stumped. The attorney is stumped. So the realtor goes to the attorney. The attorney doesn't know what to do. He goes to a judge. And the old judge says this. It's very simple. You run an announcement in the paper requesting the stated owner the Lord God Almighty, to make known if he still has any interest in the property and that absent any objection from said owner, the Lord God Almighty, the property will be disposed of by the deacons of the church. Then after a couple of weeks, you run another announcement to this effect. After thorough and diligent search, the Lord God Almighty cannot be found in Cherokee County, North Carolina. (laughs) Therefore, legal standing for the disposition of the property is transferred to the deacons of the church. (laughs) I love that. It's funny because in the book, this really doesn't have anything to do with almost anything, but it's a great story. Whether God replies to the newspaper ads or not, without argument, he owns the world and everything in it because he created it. That's what Psalm 24 verse 1 says. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. And while that is true, what we'll see this morning is that God says specifically, particularly, and repeatedly, without equivocation, that he lays special and unique claim to the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. God not only sovereignly chose a people for himself, this is what we've been seeing as we've been going through Deuteronomy, and his special purpose is the Jews, but he also chose a specific piece of real estate the land of Israel, and he gave that land by promise and covenant to the descendants of Abraham. We're in the 15th message in the Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy series. Way back when we started, the second message in this, we saw that God chose to remove some groups from the land of Canaan, that was its title back in the day, in order to give that same land to Israel. We saw in that message that he'd done the same for other people groups, but in this case, 
The Canaanites were removed so Israel could be brought in. And we said God could do that. That was okay because he's God and we're not. In the 12th message, we saw that God sovereignly chose the Jews. So he chose a land and he chose the Jews. He chose a people, the descendants of Abraham, for his own people and possession. And if you remember in that lesson, it's clear. God says, I didn't choose you because you were so great. You were small, you were stiff-necked, you were stubborn. We said that's a lot like his choosing people today too, isn't it? God's choice isn't because of some inherent quality in the objects of his choice. It's because of his own mercy and grace. This morning, we're going to combine elements of those two themes, the unique claims for a people and the unique claims for a promise, the promise of that land there to inherit. Let me just walk you through real quickly where we'll go. We'll start in Deuteronomy. We'll look at some of the promises that Moses presupposes as he gets the Jews ready to go into the land of promise. We'll look at some comments and some promises God made concerning the land. We'll look very briefly at some current events in the land of promise right now. And then we'll look at some applications for ourselves. Because the promises we're looking at this morning primarily in Deuteronomy do not apply by and large to us. There might be some application indirectly, but the promises themselves do not specifically apply to us in the church age. And remember, as Israel is ready, they're poised on the east side of the Jordan River, they're getting ready to go into the land of promise. Moses' life is winding down. He's reminding them of the covenant they're entering and what God means for them as they go into the land of promise. So if you have your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 11. We'll look at verses 8 through 12 as we kick off. I'm reading from the ESV. So Moses continues here, "'You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today,' that you may be strong, and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, that you may live long in the land that the Lord, that's Yahweh, all caps there, that Yahweh swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, for the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So as he describes the land they're going in, he says, you know, back in Egypt, you had to irrigate everything. But the land that I'm taking you into, it gets the showers of heaven. And it gets springs that come up. You'll have the rains of heaven for your crops. You'll have these springs of fresh water for your own use. And he says, your, your God cares for this land specifically and uniquely. It says his eyes are on it from the beginning of the year to the end. In other words, it never ends. God is constantly overlooking, overseeing the land of promise in a way that is not true of the rest of the earth. Now, what Moses is saying here, he has in mind, I'm sure, elements that he wrote, he recorded for us way back in Genesis 12. And we need to start back there because he's assuming there are promises that are being fulfilled as Israel goes into the land. So if you turn to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and we'll add verse 7 to that. You guys remember, this is a pivotal passage these short verses they changed the the flow of all history for all time you know you go through those first 11 chapters of genesis and you've certainly got creation and fall you've got flood but you've got a genealogy that's running through all of that and after babel we've got this one guy out of that genealogy who god calls for his own purposes out of everyone on the earth he calls abram in genesis 12 Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, The Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land, go to the land that I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation. Remember, nation always assumes geography. In the land I'm taking you, you're going to become a great nation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a messianic promise. We'll 
talk about a little bit more later. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I give this land. So there in the call of Abram, you've also got this promise that the land that Abram is taken to is for him and it's for his descendants after him. Genesis 13, 14 uh, keep up if you want and don't if you, if you don't need to. I'm going to read several short verses here. Genesis 13, 14, after Abram had separated from his, his nephew Lot because they've got so much livestock, God told him this, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, look north, south, east, west, all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring, and here, here he qualifies it, forever. It's yours and it's your offspring forever. If you go to Genesis 15, this is a, this is a graphic, graphic passage. Just mentioned briefly here. You've got promises. God says something. It's his promise. But here, he gives Abram the land by covenant. He sort of ups the ante as if what I've said already as a promise isn't enough. I'm going to make a covenant. And in Genesis 15, it's an odd passage. It sticks out if you've read it. It's very a graphic portrayal. God comes down to Abram. And, and all Abram can see is something that looks like a smoking fire. But you remember, God shows up as fire routinely in Scripture. And it's so overwhelming for Abram, he just falls out. He's, he's uh, like he's comatose or he's semi-conscious or unconscious. And that's helpful because... This becomes not only a covenant God makes, but it's unilateral and it's unconditional. Abram has nothing to do with it. He's asleep. God makes a covenant with him when he can't even say yes to it. It's all on God's side. And this is what he says in part, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, if you read the passage, you'll see God's presence as this smoking fire moves between the pieces of animal carcass that Abram has cut up because God told him to. When you made a covenant in the Old Testament, you literally cut a covenant. You cut an animal in half, you divided the carcass pieces, and when you walked through it, you were saying, may this be done to me if I don't keep the covenant. So it's only God that walks between the pieces of the animals. So it's a unilateral, unconditional covenant to Abram and his heirs forever. On the geography specific, if you look at a map today of Israel, it's a fraction of the promised land, and only a fraction. So if you looked at the Mediterranean Ocean at the southeast corner, go diagonal, and then go up the Great Rift Valley, the Dead Sea, the River Jordan, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and actually from there, if you kept going north and northeast until you hit the Euphrates River, so this is almost all of modern Lebanon, it's a big chunk out of modern-day Syria, all that is the land of promise. So now it's given by covenant. If you look at Genesis 17, 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So you've got promises, you've got covenant that this land is Abraham and his heir's land, and it's forever. Now, Scripture, God confirms this promise to three generations. So he says it to Abram, but then he confirms it to Abram's son Isaac, and he confirms it to Isaac's son Jacob, if you turn to Genesis 26, verses 2 and 3, Yahweh appears to Isaac and says, this is during a drought, don't go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. And by the way, the language you'll see is just like Genesis 12. Uh, Stay in the land, I'll bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father, you're the next in line to receive that special covenant and promise that it's through you that all the earth will be blessed and that the land will be given. Then if you go to Genesis 28, 
Isaac's son Jacob, if you remember, he's actually fleeing Esau at this point, but he's at Bethel and he's asleep one night, his head's on a rock, and he sees this crazy vision. There's a ladder that goes from earth to heaven. There's angels coming up and down, and there at the top of the ladder in heaven is the Lord himself. It says, the Lord Yahweh stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, the south. In you and your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. You'll see that repeated, by the way, in Genesis 48. So, of that narrow strip of land on the east end of the Mediterranean, you've got repeated promises, you've got covenant, and you've got the promise confirmed to three different generations. I'd say this is a pretty sure thing. Within the land of promise, though, God also speaks specifically about the city of Jerusalem. So if you turn, if you'd like, to 1 Kings 11, verse 32 and 36, uh, God had told Solomon, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. And I'm gonna, I won't do it in your day, but I'll do it in your sons. So when Solomon's son Rehoboam comes to the throne, God removes the northern ten tribes. He takes them away. And now you've got two kingdoms, two Jewish kingdoms, Israel in the north, ten tribes, Judah in the south, two tribes. And he's speaking to Jeroboam, who's going to be the first king in the northern tribes. And he tells them, as he's telling him about the land he's committing to his care, he says, you don't get Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, remember, is right there just south of the border between those two now distinct national entities. He says, Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Verse 36, Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. So within the, the land of promise, all that territory, God says there's one city which I distinctly choose. In the chosen land, I also choose a distinct city. Psalm 132, verse 13 says this, Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And what you'll see throughout the Old Testament is Zion is used synonymously with Jerusalem. Zion or Mount Zion would be there on the southern end of the hill that Jerusalem was built on. So Zion and Jerusalem are often used interchangeably. If you turn to Psalm 87, verses 1 through 3, on the holy mount stands the city he, God, founded. The Lord, Yahweh, loves the gates of Zion, the gates that are around Jerusalem, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. These things are only said of Jerusalem. So a chosen land and a chosen capital. And last, Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14 the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So out of all of this, you see God looks with special favor, and he's given promises, and he says how he feels about the land of promise, Israel, and also specifically the city of Jerusalem. So we say, because God says, the Jews are God's chosen people, Israel is his chosen land, and Jerusalem is his chosen capital. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy, going back to what Moses is saying there to the Jews about the land of promise, go to chapter 28, verses 63 and 64. These are chapters where God is rehearsing with Israel if you obey this conditional covenant which was given at Sinai, if you obey the conditional covenant, you get blessing. But if you don't fulfill your part of this conditional covenant, you get cursing. And so in part, God said, it's going to impact faithlessness to Yahweh in the covenant is going to impact their presence in their land. So you see this in Deuteronomy 28, verses 63 and 64. This Moses as the Lord, as Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. That's serious. I don't want God to say that about me or you, huh? 
you will be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. They haven't even got there yet. And Moses warns, guys, you're going there, but he's already warning them about being kicked out later. You shall be plucked off the land that you're entering to take possession of. Yahweh will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known. So, Moses is writing about 1400 B.C. So, you know, if you go through Joshua and Judges and the Kings and Samuel, you get the history of what's taking place as Israel moves into the land of promise and has nation status there. But if you go fast forward about 700 years, to 2 Kings 17, verse 6. This is 722 B.C., so almost 700 years after Moses writes this, we read this, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of, and Hosea is the king of Israel, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And Samaria is the capital of the northern ten tribes. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So almost 700 years later, the northern ten tribes go into captivity. They are deported. And they're deported primarily east, but it's throughout the Assyrian and the Medo-Persian Empire area east. These would be the Stan areas today. So about 700 years later, this becomes true of Israel. God kicks them out of the land. For Judah, it happens almost 150 years later, 586 B.C. This is 2 Kings 25, verses 8 through 11. And by the way, if you've read Samuel and Kings and or Chronicles, you'll know that God was supremely patient with Israel Their covenant faithlessness was the whole time they were in the land of promise, effectively. There were blips of national repentance and restoration, but the norm was they were not faithful. And God was supremely patient and merciful before he finally had them deported. So in 586, when Babylon is the power, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord. And that's Solomon's temple. And the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. All the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. So the promise slash warning God made in Deuteronomy 28, he carried out. So the northern tribes are kicked out, they're displaced, they're deported into the nations, and then later, almost 150 years, Judah, two tribes in the south, they're kicked out, they're deported into the nations as well. They were a little bit more uh, restricted in the air they were taken. They were taken to Babylon itself. Those who were taken into the Assyrian Empire were dispersed more broadly than was Judah. Now, if you turn back in Deuteronomy again, chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, you not only have in Deuteronomy the warning of Israel being dispossessed for faithlessness, but you have the promise that God would bring them back into the land of promise again. So this is Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord, where Yahweh your God has driven you, you're going to fail, you're going to be deported, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and all your soul, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, no matter how far away they've been sent, from there the Lord, Yahweh your God, will gather you. From there he will take you 
And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So you got the warning in chapter 28, you got the promise of return in chapter 30. Now the northern tribes never experienced a national return. That is, there wasn't a single time in which the northern tribes were taken back as a group back into the land of promise. In part because of that, you'll weird, you can read perhaps some weird theology is promoted in the last hundred years or so. Uh, people wanted to say that the British were the lost tribes of the house of Israel. And there's a significant way there are no lost tribes. You remember that for the Jews who were settled or resettled into the Assyrian Empire, those folks, they propagated generation after generation through all that part of the world, up north into Russia, into all of East Europe, and they, they trickled back in over time. That's been true all along, even until current days. So we don't say there's lost tribes of Israel. Those tribes are still represented today, but there was not one singular mass return from the northern tribes into the land of promise. Now, the southern tribes had a national return. That's in 530, depending on who you read, 539 or 538 B.C. You can read about that in Ezra 1. When Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, the Persians said, hey, you guys can go back. And so a large, significant group did go back to Israel at that time. And you remember they rebuilt, you can read Ezra mentioned Nehemiah here in a second, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are all part of that return group. So the temple gets rebuilt. It's not nearly as impressive as Solomon's was. But Israel as a group, they're back in the land of promise, the southern tribes, national return, 539-38 B.C. There's also a significant second return. And these are significant because they're numeric, numerically significant, and because Scripture calls them out. In Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah 1, verses 8 through 9, this is about 445 B.C., so it's a long time later, but Jerusalem is still relatively in ruins. And guys, if you look, even if you look today at walls in or around Jerusalem, it took a lot of effort to tear one of those stone walls down. But you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he made a point. So he, they worked hard and they tore those walls down. So when the returnees came back to Jerusalem, it was a rubble heap. And though the temple had been rebuilt and people were in the land again, they were still pretty much scattered. The walls of Jerusalem had not been rebuilt. And that's when Nehemiah returns to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And listen to what he says in part. He quotes Deuteronomy 30 as he's praying to God about his own return to rebuild. and He'll become the governor of that area. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, straight out of Deuteronomy 30, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell." I love, he's praying God's word back to him to say, hey, Lord, we're, we're on your string, we're on your promise, we're on your word, and we're going back to continue to do what you promised you would support us in our return in rebuilding in the land of promise. So they went back as well. So Israel's presence in the land of promise from there, the four and five hundreds B.C., that lasts until roughly 70 A.D., and I've got on your study sheet 135 as well. So if you read, we think of the 400 silent years, that's when they're there. Or you think of Jesus' birth, Israel is alive, well, they're in the land of promise. In 70 AD, there's a revolt under the Romans, and first Vespasian and then his son Titus, they come, and under Titus, they destroy Jerusalem again. Just like the Babylonians, it gets destroyed again, the walls are torn down, it's put to the torch, in fact, you can still see this represented on an Arch of Triumph in which you can see the menorah from the temple being carried in the victory parade home to Rome. So Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, but Jews remained in the land of promise. And then in 135 AD, there's another revolt. It doesn't get much press, but it's called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. 
And the Romans squashed that too. And at that point, it became illegal for Jews to live in or around Jerusalem. So whether you say 70 A.D. or 135 A.D., the Jews as a nation did not exist in the land of promise until May 14, 1948. That's a big deal. A big deal. Almost 2,000 years out of the land of promise, May of 1948, they're restored as a nation. Now I want to skip to another exile author. So this is Ezekiel. I don't know if it bears turning to chapters 36 and 37 or not, but these are pivotal passages regarding Israel's presence in the land of promise. Ezekiel, like Daniel, had been taken out of Judea before it was destroyed. So in 605 B.C. and 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar deports key leaders out of Judah because he doesn't want revolt to be a possibility. This was common practice. So Daniel, when you read Daniel, most of us realize, okay, he's in Babylon. But so was Ezekiel. He's one of those deportees. He's in Babylon for all of his ministry. And he says this in part, chapter 36, he talks about a national return of Israel to the land of promise. And when you read this in chapter 36, he is intentionally referring to the new covenant Jeremiah 31 promised. Uh, letters would go, you remember, from Jeremiah and from Judah before it fell to the captives in Babylon. They still had back and forth communication. And so listen to this in verses 25 through 28. This is Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God." Now, there's been no restoration of Israel in history that has fulfilled this. This is the new covenant. You know, in the church age, we celebrate, Larry's going to lead us later in the Lord's Supper, the institution of the new covenant. We take for granted the new covenant. But the Jews were the ones promised the new covenant. It wasn't specifically addressed to the church. We live in the benefit of a promise that was actually made to a different people group. The Jews, and that's what Ezekiel's referring to. I'm going to give you a new heart. Jeremiah says, I'm going to write my laws on your heart. Ezekiel says, I'm going to give you a new heart. You're going to be spiritually revitalized. This has not happened nationally. When you turn to chapter 37, and this is worth reading, people are put off by the prophets, and I get that. Who is this? When is this? Where is this? That's, that's a challenge. That's why we use study Bibles. We read the forewords and the notes, okay, to get a sense of that. <clears throat> but in chapter 37, there's a very memorable vision given to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel and the Lord, they're looking out, and I, in my mind, I envision like a desert valley floor. And Ezekiel looks out, and he sees these dry old bones scattered throughout this valley, and God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Is it possible for life to be given into these dry bones? These are not only dead, they're dead dead. They're long dead. And Ezekiel shrewdly says, Lord, you know. I'm not taking the bait, Lord. I don't know what you're up to. You tell me. So as he watches the dry bones, they move and they fit together to form skeletons, human skeletons. And as he watches, muscle and sinew and flesh, skin is applied to all these. And instead of seeing a valley of dry bones, he sees people. But there's one problem. They're not alive until God breathes in them. And guys, this is straight out of Genesis 2. You remember God forms Adam from the dust of the earth, but he's not alive until God breathes into him the breath of life. That's the same imagery in Ezekiel 37. So he, and if you read it in context, God says, I'm going to bring the nation of Israel to life again. 
They've been dead, 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 like dry bones in the valley. And he says, I'm going to bring them back in. And this is verses 21 and 22. He says, Thus says the Lord God, having seen all this, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. Is, to me, Israel's presence in the land of promise today looks like Ezekiel 37. The Jews have a national homeland again since 1948. But as a nation, they do not believe in Jesus as Messiah. There are religious minorities in Israel. There are Christians. There are Messianic Jews. But guys, they are all a small minority in Israel broadly. So they're there. Physically, they're in the land of promise. But they don't have the breath of life. They don't have, they're not living now currently as a nation under the blessing and the promise of the new covenant. If you've kept track of any news lately, Israel's in the news all the time. And usually it's not for great reasons. It's for reasons they'd rather not have going on in their country. So they've been in the news a lot because of their own political challenges. You know, the Knesset, you've got to have enough political parties that form a coalition to have a majority to rule and appoint a prime minister and all that. And they have a very, very difficult time with this. They've had four or five elections in the last few years trying to get a majority coalition. And they just did. Uh, Naftali Bennett, I think is his last name, is the new prime minister. Bibi Netanyahu has been there for 12 years. He's the longest serving prime minister. He was just put out by this recent vote. So they've been in the news a lot for their own political challenges. The other thing, of course, you know they're in the news often and regularly is because of strife and warfare. So they were just in a war with Hamas out of Gaza recently. Hundreds of people were killed. Do you know, do you know how that started, how this most recent uh, warfare, and it, it wasn't just external, it was internal. There was strife, there was rioting, there were challenges within Israel as well. Do you know how that, this story does not get much press, but it is available. That battle started over a piece of geography in East Jerusalem, over the land of promise. The latest warfare was over a neighborhood parcel in East Jerusalem, which is not what you read. But this is the deal. There's a Jewish group that legally owns a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. There's no question about this legally, none at all. But from 1948, 58, 68, to 1967, Palestinians were living on that land, on Jewish-owned land. But when Israel repossessed East Jerusalem in 67, the Jewish owners were ready to take back over their land. So, 67, they waited 20 years into the middle 80s, and they started legal proceedings to take back their land. In the middle 80s, guys, this started in the courts in Israel, and it's not settled today. It's going to the Israeli Supreme Court. It won't be settled until next year sometime. But the latest battle was over a small piece of East Jerusalem that is legally entitled to the Jewish owners, and they can't, get, they can't get it because Palestinians lived there for 20 years. And even though they started the legal process, they're still not there. It's still about the land and whose land is it and who can be there. Now, there's no more contested piece of land in the world than Israel. Go through history, you know, it's sort of at the it's at the crossroads of Africa and Asia and Europe, so it's always had a lot of traffic through it. But if you ask yourself, why is it that this is such a big deal? You know, Israel's about 120 miles long, about 60 miles wide. These are sort of at the long point. It's a little thing. I think it's about like the state of Rhode Island. Why is it that, that none of Israel's neighbors think it's okay for them to live in that land? You know, what's the deal? Why is there such... Hatred fomented against not only Jews generally, but against Jews living in that land. And one of the things I think we tend to forget because we see the news, we think of what our eyes can see and our ears can hear, we forget that this is all about a spiritual power at work confronting or opposed to what God said he's about. And for that, 
I want to turn just very briefly, I won't keep you too long this morning, to Daniel 10, verses 12 through 14. When we focus on people as the enemy, we're usually missing something. Now, it's not that people might not oppose us or individuals or nation groups don't oppose Israel. They do, but there's another whole level of reality that I think it's easy to forget, and it's that unseen reality that affects the world you and I interact in. And in Daniel 10, verses 12 through 14, I'll read that. Daniel was given a revelation from heaven, and he didn't know what to make of it. So he says, I'm going to fast and pray, and I'm going to ask God to show me the meaning of what he's revealed to me. And in the midst, three weeks later, he's been fasting and praying for three weeks, an angelic messenger shows up from heaven. And this is what he says. He said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, three weeks earlier, and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. This angel says, Daniel, you prayed three weeks ago. I was sent three weeks ago. You prayed, heaven listened, and I was dispatched to come tell you some information. He says, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. The three weeks Daniel's been waiting. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision that Daniel had is for days yet to come. Guys, what are we reading about here? These are not humans. You got an angel from heaven that says the prince, singular, the prince of Persia, opposed me, an angel messenger from God, opposed me successfully for three weeks. Until Michael, a prince, not a human prince, an angelic prince, came to help me. And then I was able to bust through the line of opposition of the kings, plural, of Persia, and come in and do what I was commissioned to do from God in heaven and tell you what's coming up. So when we see this opposition to Israel specifically and to their presence in the land of promise, it is a spiritual opposition first and foremost, and that gets trickled down to the humans who become part of that web of opposition against what God's doing. So Ephesians 6 says the same things. As Christians, we say, you know, Second uh, Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but Ephesians 6, you know, it's the spiritual armor of God and prayer. Well, we need to bring that kind of understanding to the challenges the chosen people of God the chosen city of God, the chosen land of God, have the opposition they face in the world today is first and primarily it's spiritual. Secondarily, it's human. If you read in Daniel chapter 11, what the angel says to Daniel is so specific, and we have extra biblical sources on this that say this is so specific, describing at least a couple hundred years in what we call the 400 silent years, that for years, even Christians didn't want to believe this was prophecy spoken before because it talks about the back and forth warfare, who's in power, the king of the north, the king of the south, the covenants that are made, etc. They said it's so specific, it couldn't be written beforehand unless, unless it was, unless God was in that. That's exactly what happens. And when you get to Daniel chapter 12, it's clear, it's the language, it's right out of Matthew 24, it's a time on earth like no other time for its violence and destruction. It sounds just like Matthew 24, and it's followed by a resurrection. And that has not happened. Again, we're looking at passages of Scripture that you inarguably can say, this has never been fulfilled in history, but the God who promises and covenants has said these things are going to happen. You can read passages like Isaiah 2, 11, 60 through 66, to see what will it look like for Israel to live under the new covenant in the land of promise when Jesus, during his millennial reign, reigns over the world from his capital, Jerusalem. Talks a little bit about what that looks like. One of the things that's interesting out of Isaiah, he says, you will wear out the work of your hands. Uh, we were at uh, Keith and Sarah's this week, and she says, you know, that that uh, rocking chair, that was my grandmother's. It's like, that's old, but if that rocking chair was in this, 
this period, they'd wear it out. Because they'll live so long, they'll wear out the work of their hands. The same passage says, if you died a hundred years old, people will know God judged you because you died so young. So those days are still coming. In fact, Isaiah 25 says God is going to set a feast on the mountains. And it's going to be of aged wine and fine meat. And he says death is going to be laid to rest. Death's going to have a holiday that death is not going to be the norm when Jesus reigns from his chosen capital in his chosen land among his chosen people. So that's all to come. And scripture, Isaiah, there's a ton of this in the Old Testament. So God's plan for his chosen people, his chosen land will be accomplished, but it's going to be against great spiritual and then human opposition as well. I want to conclude along this line. In mercy, God carved out that land for Abraham and his heirs, and I believe all those promises are going to be fulfilled just as they were spoken. But they don't apply to us, certainly not in that same sense. God chose that narrow strip on the east end of the Mediterranean for his own, for his chosen people, a place from which he would eventually rule to bring blessing to all the earth and ultimately fulfill Genesis 12, the promise made to Abraham, that through Abraham, which means essentially through his heir Jesus, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's still to come. God miraculously led Israel in taking possession of the land. That's the book of Joshua. God established his own house, his own tabernacle on the earth in Jerusalem, first the tent and then the temple. God kept his word and kicked Israel out of the land for their unfaithfulness two times and brought them back both times. God sent Jesus to Israel not only to proclaim salvation, but to die on the same hills on which his human forefather Abraham had offered his unique one and only son, Isaac. The land of promise is a Jewish nation again, but clearly they are gathered there in unbelief. In fact, you have a hard time proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the land of Israel today. King Jesus will return, and you see this not only in Zechariah 12 and 14, you see it in Acts 1. Jesus is promising to return to the Mount of Olives right outside the city of Jerusalem and take up his residence as king for a thousand years. In fact, if you read in Zechariah and Isaiah, it says during this period the nations of the earth will send envoys to show obeisance and respect. In fact, one passage says if they don't, their nations won't get rain. They will submit to King Jesus one way or another. I'm thrilled by these promises, by the way, and part of the reason I am is for this. Uh, nation has been the dog that the world, or Israel has been the dog that the nations have kicked forever. But you know, they've got promises, and those promises are going to come true, and it won't matter what anyone does. God has said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And when I think of that, and the unlikely appearance of that occurring, we take Israel as a nation for granted, but no one did before 1948. The Zionists, the Brits, the Americans that talked about a Jewish national homeland were scoffed and laughed. Frankly, the theologians in the 1800s that said God would restore Israel to the land, they were scoffed at too. But it happened because God said it would happen. So I'm thrilled by that. It looks unlikely, it doesn't matter. God's still going to do it. You and I have a different set of promises. You and I are not the nation of Israel. We are part of the bride of Jesus Christ, the church. We have a different, and Hebrew says, a better promise. As good as all that is, in mercy and grace, God has provided something Hebrews calls better for us, a heavenly city in a new heavens and new earth. It'll be a place like the Garden of Eden, but bigger and better, and it'll last forever. Hebrews 13, 14 says, Here we have no lasting city. Christians are not looking for the earthly Jerusalem. We seek the city that is to come. Galatians talks about the new Jerusalem being our mother, not the Jerusalem on earth. The new Jerusalem. 
Jesus rules the earth for a thousand years. And after that, 2 Peter 3 tells us that the earth and everything on it that we've known is consumed in a fire that melts the very elements and God starts all over again. And just as surely as God promised Abraham and his heirs the land of promise, he has promised those who trust in Jesus Christ today an eternal inheritance on Father's Day, a good reminder, in the Father's house, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth. John 14, 1 through 3, most of us probably know this. Jesus says to his disciples, because they know he's going away, this is not a good thing. We want you to stick around, Lord. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It was Jesus' promise to the disciples and to you and I today, to the church. If you turn to Revelation 21 and 22, you get some insight into the little bit that God says about what does that look like? What is the new Jerusalem? What does the new heavens and earth look like? In part, John the Apostle wrote this about the bride of Christ. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth have passed away and the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's Revelation 21. If you get into Revelation 22, you see a throne, God's throne, in the New Jerusalem, you see a river of life coming from the throne. You see the trees of life along the river. And then in that context, it says this. And I love that as the Bible winds down, God is giving an invitation again and again to believe like Abraham did and receive life. Referring to the river of life, let the one who is thirsty, Jesus says, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's just like, is your soul thirsty? Do you know you have sin? Do you feel the weight of sin on your back? He says salvation is like coming up to this river of life and it's taking a cool drink and you'll never regret it. And you'll never regret the eternity you share with God in his presence. If you've trusted Christ, that's your future. So it's not, the, it's not Jerusalem on the earth, it's the new Jerusalem. And as certainly as the Jews have inhabited and will inhabit in blessing Jerusalem today, you and I and all who trust in Christ will inhabit the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth forever. That'll be a good day. Well, rise with me if you would. I want to read from Psalm 126 verses 1 through 3 to close. This describes the return of Jews to the land of promise. And it's a great way to close the theme this morning, but also our own expectations about what we have to look forward to in the future. Let's read that together. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad.